Our New Testament reading this evening is from Matthew 13, verses 31 to 35. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 30 kilograms of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Rachel, thanks so much uh, for reading. Shall we pray as we we begin? Father, we ask now that you would be gracious to us and bless us and make your face shine upon us so that your ways may be known on earth and your salvation amongst all nations. Amen. Well, it's great to be with you, and and the the passage that Rachel just read from Matthew 13 um, is what we're going to be looking at. Uh, The middle of Matthew's Gospel, we're diving right into the middle, Uh, Jesus has announced a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, but at this point in the story, it it doesn't look like it's going to succeed, actually. Jesus' popularity rating is not good, his kingdom is failing to get buy-in from the people. So uh, that's, that's where we are. Uh, Matthew's gospel actually started really well. You know, when Jesus was born, that wise men came to worship him. Uh, they, they called him the king of the Jews. And in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he preached a, 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 describing a new way of life in this kingdom that he was building. He described a revolution in which the meek would inherit the earth, uh, uh, in which people would love their enemies and give generously to those who oppress them. And Jesus taught that in his kingdom, people would have a heavenly father who meets their needs. And and at the start of Matthew's gospel, it's really exciting because this wasn't just talk. I mean, he healed the sick, he calmed the storm, he even raised the dead. And you're reading Matthew's gospel, you think, well, that's pretty good, right? That's pretty good. But, but no, that's not how the people saw it back then. They decided that he wasn't the king they were looking for. I mean, Jesus was homeless. He was wandering from place to place with a gang of men who just relied on donations. Uh, Matthew describes how he hung out with some notorious sinners. And indeed, the, the religious leaders of the day Some of the rumors said that Jesus must be in league with the devil. So that by the time you get to uh, chapter 11 of Matthew's gospel, even John the Baptist is having doubts about Jesus. In chapter 11, uh, John sends messengers to Jesus to say, are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else, like someone better than you? And even in the cities where Jesus did most of his miracles, he found the people didn't repent. So what's gone wrong? By this point in Matthew's Gospel, the only people following Jesus were the losers. And that is not a good basis for building an empire. So that's where we are uh, in in what Rachel just read for us. And that's the context where Jesus told these parables. 
And the first one, the parable of the mustard seed, is talking about the unexpected growth of Jesus' kingdom. So, verse 31, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Stop there. We know what comes next. We're going to say how big it grows. But the surprise is not how big it grows, but how small it starts. I don't know about you. I don't actually know very much about mustard seeds. Sorry, can't help you there. Apparently, they're really, really tiny. Um, I think the closest I've ever got to one is... Um, like if I'm out and, and buying food, uh, I like burgers. I don't know about, about you. I, I like to get a burger. And when you buy a burger, on top of the bun, on top of the, that, there's the little sesame seeds, like really small. We're, we're talking something small like that. So you would think, wouldn't you, that if Jesus was trying to describe his kingdom uh, and convince people to enter it, you'd think he'd come up with a better analogy than mustard seeds. I mean, KFC have got a better plan, haven't they? Finger-licking goods. Uh, Pringles, once you pop, you can't stop. Like Red Bull, it gives you wings. That's much more impressive. Shouldn't Jesus like get out just a marketing team together, big up his kingdom a bit more? It, no, no one's going to want to join if he compares it to a mustard seed. It's pathetic, isn't it? I mean, last time you had a burger and you're eating your burger and one of the seeds falls off, and you just, oh no, my meal is ruined. I've got to find that seed. Oh, my burger's destroyed. No, you, you don't even notice. And that's what it's like with mustard seeds. They're tiny. They're just insignificant. And yet Jesus insists the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. You will not find God's kingdom if you're looking for something big and impressive. That's not how God usually works in this world. Now Jesus' reign breaks into this world without drawing attention to itself. His kingdom grows quietly, unnoticed, overlooked. And, and while all the world's attention is on the big global events and the, the big stuff that's happening, actually just quietly in a corner, no one's noticed a tiny little seed is starting to grow and grow and grow. Reading on verse 32, Jesus said that though it's the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree. Apparently, I did look this up, apparently mustard seeds can grow from a seed to six foot tall in a single season. So you, you just suddenly, oh, wow, where did that come from? It's such a bit of a surprise. And, and the kingdom that Jesus is bringing, he's saying, it will not look special to those on the outside of it. It will look entirely insignificant, yet it will produce growth out of all proportion to its beginnings. The way to judge the impressiveness of the kingdom is not to look at what it is, but at what it will be. That's what his work in the world is like. That's his method for changing lives. To start small, in fact, just one person at a time, growing quietly unnoticed, under the radar, until one day people will look back in surprise at how large it has become. So is Jesus' kingdom a failure at this point? Is it, is it not living up to the potential that it could have had? Well, no, Jesus is saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. His kingdom will undergo significant and substantial growth, but it won't hit the headlines. Now, the Said Business School, the MBA students are not going to do case studies on this. It will bubble away in the background, off the radar of mainstream society, never considered important. 
until only at the end will it surprise everyone by how much it has grown. I don't know if anyone here has heard of uh, Ron Wayne. We've got a picture of him potentially on the screen, if that's possible. So Ron Wayne, uh, one of the richest people in the world uh, outside his home. Well, almost one of the richest people in the world. Uh, Ron Wayne uh, was the third brain behind Apple when it was founded. He was one of the three co-founders of Apple in 1976. And he had a 10% stake. You know, Steve Jobs, I think, was a big, big stake. But he had a 10% stake. But less than two weeks later, he quit. He sold his stake for $800. He thought the whole project was just too risky. If he had not done that, his stake today would be worth over $75 billion. But at the time, it just didn't seem like anything significant. He, he, he said he made the best decision with the information available to him at the time. Because the problem is, no one expected such a large company to come out of something so small. And so it is with the kingdom. Let me take that down. Jesus says that the kingdom may start small... But don't reject it for that reason alone. And don't drop out from following Jesus because the project looks too risky. The rule and reign of Jesus in people's lives will grow and grow and grow into something so big that the smart thing to do now is to invest your whole life into it. Still today, the, the kingdom is growing, but you might easily miss it. And the, the news headlines at the moment, you know, Israel and Palestine, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, uh, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, and any, any Swifties here? Yeah. Yay, well done. And um, uh, Travis Kelsey's an NFL player, very famous, but better known as Taylor Swift's boyfriend. Anyway, um, while all the attention is on the news and, and on TikTok and whatever, Far more importantly than any of that, someone in Oxford was reading a Bible before, you know, they're getting up this morning, and they shared a verse with a friend to encourage them. Crucial to world history, someone in Chile discovered Jesus and understood about Jesus for the first time and started following him. Quietly unobserved, in the background, out of the headlines, the mustard seed is growing. It looks trivial and insignificant, yet it is what really counts. It is by these little things that the reign of Jesus is growing. And if you want to find the kingdom of God in the world, look for what God is doing quietly, behind the scenes, in the lives of believers. It's not impressive, and it doesn't get much, much mention on social media but one day it will surprise everyone by how much it has grown with millions of people or billions of people having entered in. Okay, let's try the second parable. If the, if the mustard seed speaks about the unexpected growth of the kingdom, some, from something that is easily overlooked now to something enormous at the end, the parable of the yeast seems to speak about the unexpected spread of the kingdom. Let's look at that. Verse 33, Jesus told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 30 kilograms of flour until it worked all through the dough. Now again, this is very uh, similar to the, to the last parable. Uh, the puzzle here when we're reading it is, is why doesn't Jesus say, the kingdom of heaven is like chocolate cake. You want something exciting, ice cream. 
salted caramel ice cream. You know, big it up. But, but no, he's, he's picking on the small things, the hidden things, the unseen things. And so he says, actually, the kingdom of heaven, it's, it's like yeast. Now, uh, we know the thing with, with, with making bread is you add a bit of yeast and it changes the entire loaf, doesn't it? Uh, but when you give the bread to people to, to, to taste and to try, they don't comment on the yeast. They don't go, hmm, what great yeast this is, like full-bodied, extra mature, like, tell me, where did you get your yeast? I mean, the, the, the yeast passes unnoticed. You know, if someone asks you for the recipe, the, the yeast gets just the briefest mention. And, and, and the point is simple, that, that just like the mustard seed started small yet grew to be big, in, in the same way this yeast starts in one place, yet is mixed through more and more and more until it is everywhere. You, you can't see it, but it ends up everywhere. And again, it's Jesus' method. It's what the kingdom looks like. It's, it's, it's how the kingdom's about. Just to start local, just him and a few disciples he recruited, not impressive at all, he confined himself mostly to his own nation. It certainly didn't look like this had any chance of changing the world. But Jesus knew what he was doing. What he started, he intended would spread. It would spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After his resurrection, he told his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. And that's what's been happening ever since. It's the story of world history. Day by day, Little by little, his kingdom is spreading. It's spreading around the world as people from every nation and people group become his followers. It's spreading in the cities. It's spreading in the towns and in the rural areas. It's spreading amongst both rich and poor. It's spreading amongst those who've been to university and those who can't read. It's spreading amongst people of all different races, all different languages, all different cultures. And even if sometimes the kingdom appears to be declining in, in one country or one place, later it usually turns out that it was growing much more rapidly elsewhere. As the mustard seed, it is still growing. As yeast, it is still spreading. And the reign of Jesus does not attract the attention of the rolling news channels, but at the very end of time, the book of Revelation describes God's kingdom as containing a multitude of people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And that will be true then because that's what Jesus is doing today right now. He's quietly extending his kingdom. I guess the, the, the most famous brand uh, you can go anywhere in the world and buy probably must be Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola is drunk uh, pretty much everywhere in the world across every social group. Um, in my work with Wicked Bible Translators, I, I travel quite a bit, and I know that anywhere in the world, no matter where I am, if I need something safe to drink, because you're sometimes getting food poisoning and stuff from different bits of food and, and so on, but anywhere, I can always ask for Coca-Cola. From the poorest village to the richest city, Coke is everywhere. Coke is sold in more countries than there are members of the United Nations. They sell 1.9 billion drinks a day. And there's nothing. It's pathetic. It's, it's, it's useless compared to the spread of Jesus' kingdom. Because without any marketing budget, the news of Jesus' reign has spread and is still spreading. People have become followers of Jesus in every strata of society, in every part of the world. In North Korea, there are Christians who meet. In Afghanistan, there are Christians who meet. In both Israel and Palestine, there are Christians who meet. Amongst those living in poverty and also amongst billionaires. I mean, 
Jesus here is speaking to, 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 to a crowd of people around the Sea of Galilee. They don't think his kingdom is up to much, doesn't meet their expectations. But the problem is, is not the kingdom, it's that they do not understand the vast scale to which Jesus is working. Imagine if, if we could go back in time to visit that, that crowd then. Could they have any comprehension that 2,000 years later, in a place thousands of miles away, a crowd of people this big would gather on a Sunday evening to read about what happened and to listen to and learn from Jesus, this man who they don't even think is that impressive? Could they have any concept that they could visit a church like this and find people here concerned about taking the gospel around the world? They'd be amazed that after 2,000 years, this mustard seed is still continuing to grow. The yeast is still spreading through every nation. But this is how the world is changed. You had the news about the Hootsies and, and the US and the American Navy sort of lobbying uh, missiles at each other. And this is the headlines, and, and, and it's a terrible thing, and, and it will dominate the news for, for a while, and maybe for some years. I don't know how long it's going to last, but these things come and these things go. Lasting change, eternal change, change that makes a real difference happens when lives are changed. And that happens quietly. Let me tell you uh, four stories of, of individuals um, whose lives are being changed. Uh, these are all from the Bible translation world because that's the, the world I'm, I'm part of. But just to give you a sample of what is happening around the world today in these quiet ways. Uh, so Steluta, um, these are all real people. Steluta is, is a, a Romani um, um, uh, living in Romania, and she's involved in translating uh, for the Roma people. She said, when translating John, I came across the phrase, I am, like when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life, and so on. At the time, I didn't understand why, but a light came on, and through that, my whole life changed. I've become calmer, I managed to put down the worries of life in the Lord's hands, who knows what's best for me. It's wonderful. Uh, let's move to West Africa. And Naomi is part of a, of a translation team working in, in, in West Africa uh, for, for the flame people. She says this, she used to be a Muslim. She says, as a Christian from a Muslim background, I did not come to know God as a loving God, but I've learned so much about God's unconditional love for his people through translating Hosea. I feel safe with the Father who gave everything to save me. I want other flame speakers to also know about the depth of God's love for them. There's actually a, a large and growing church rapidly happening now through, through her work and the, the work of the translation teams. Uh, another person, let's, let's move to an Islamic country uh, in, in West Asia. Uh, Wajid's uh, people group is 15 million people. Now, this is what he said. He said, we're very grateful to God for so much. Now that the Leoma, that's his language, the Leoma New Testament is complete, we're seeking to engage Leoma people with it, which is not easy given the hostility to the gospel. We praise God that the New Testament smartphone app is available now and that a rough draft of the Old Testament has already been done. Pray that the ministry of Bible translation to the Leoma people will be ever more fruitful. There's now a small, a very small, a few known Christians in that people group, but there's now a small underground church uh, that's meeting. Um, or, or another one going slightly further east, but sort of Central Asia, um, for, for the, the Nakud people. Uh, she said, only a few years ago, the Nakud people, her people group, 
had no written language, no scripture, and no church. How do you ever discover salvation when you've got no scripture and no church? She said, my friend started to write down the language and then became the first Nakud Bible translator. After translating for a few months, he said, now that I'm translating the Bible, I finally understand. His joy was contagious, and despite the threat of persecution, he shared his faith with everybody in his family. Now there is a vibrant and growing Nakud church. We'd never even heard of that, had we? We'd never heard of that church in London that, the, that, that Matt mentioned earlier, people coming to faith. That's how the kingdom grows. That's what God's doing. I, I hope you get the point, um, which I'm kind of edging towards, that when we talk about world mission, world mission is not a colonialist empire building of St. Ebbs playing power games with the rest of the world. Rather, it is a grassroots movement in which Christians all over the world collaborate together in the cause of the kingdom. All those people I mentioned are funded by churches like this one and by individuals uh, like you all giving via mission organisations because the communities they're part of couldn't do that for them themselves. But as we pray and as we give, partnering with the Christians in those places, God changes lives. Some people here uh, will be led by God to serve overseas. Um, the current generation of, of our overseas mission partners uh, uh, were previously mostly members of this actual congregation. So I take it the next generation of our overseas mission partners are here in this congregation and, and are here tonight. I'm conscious that some of you will think that, that that's wrong. That, that, like, isn't it arrogant in, in this post-colonial world to send missionaries? Wouldn't we be wouldn't the world be better off without missionaries? Don't, don't missionaries do more harm than good? Um, isn't it the sort of colonialism that belongs to the history books and it shouldn't go on today? So I thought, actually, this evening, I don't usually do this, um, I thought I... I, I um, this, is, this is like... I'm giving you some bonus content here. This is, this is like the director's cut of this sermon, OK? So, <laughs> so if you just want to just ignore this bit, you feel free. Because normally I try to sort of say things from the Bible, but I thought... Okay, going again... <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go against my better instincts here <laughs> and just try and share with you some sociological research and I'm going to get back to the Bible again, it's more interesting. Anyway, so are missionaries harmful? There was an American sociologist, a guy called Robert Woodbury, who, who asked the question, why is it that years after colonialization, some countries seem to be doing really well, that they're more democratic, they're more successful, whereas others seem to be doing really rather badly? And you see this in the news with military coups and conflicts and dictators and, and just grinding poverty. And as a sociologist, he asked the question and, and found, and this was a surprise, that the crucial uh, predictor of democratic outcomes uh, was the presence of, what do you think it is? It was the presence of evangelical missionaries seeking to convert people some generations earlier. That is to say, what our world considers to be the very worst sort of missionary. They were the crucial indicator of later development for all people, not just for Christians. A big piece of uh, uh, research published in 2012, The Missionary Roots of Liberal Democracy, if you want to look it up. What he did was, when he dug into the data, he distinguished between different types of missionary. So if you think of the colonial era, uh, some missionaries were actually just chaplains to the colonialists who looked after the expat population, both Protestants and Catholic missionaries. And some missionaries went to establish their, some kind of religious colonialism, building their own power structures and, and imposing them on people. Both Protestants and Catholics did that. 
But there were a group of people who went to serve the local people by sharing the gospel. Uh, Woodbury, being a sociologist, calls them conversionary Protestants. Um, it, it was the Protestants, not the Catholics, but it wasn't all the Protestants. It was just this group of them, and it was the ones who, in the UK, we would call evangelical missionaries, the people who went to seek to lead people to Christ. And what he found was that these conversionary Protestants, evangelical missionaries, they didn't just preach the gospel and start uh, churches, you know, marvelous as that would be, but they treated people as equals made in the image of God. Everyone else is like looking at people down on people like with a Darwinian point of view, but they treated people as equals made in the image of God. And so because they saw these people as equals, they started schools and hospitals as well. They started to teach people their rights under colonial law, which was very radical. They were siding with the people against the colonialists who were their own sort of uh, national comrades. And they helped the people to organize themselves and stand up for themselves. So I'm going to just quote at some length some of the discoveries that Woodbury found from his research into that period of history, because I think it's really quite striking. And, and um, if you're not interested, then you don't have to listen. But anyway, it, it, it really helps us to realize that some of the things that the world say about world mission uh, are, are actually quite mistaken. Okay, so Woodbury's talking about printing and literacy. Okay, he says... One, of, one mechanism through which uh, these conversionary Protestants dispersed power was massively expanding access to printed materials and news. They greatly accelerated the development of mass printing, newspapers, and the public sphere for several reasons. Firstly, these missionaries changed people's ideas about who books were for. According to them, everyone needed access to God's word, not just elites. Therefore, everyone needed to read, including women and the poor. Moreover, books had to be inexpensive and in the language that was accessible to ordinary people, not in foreign languages or classical versions of local languages. They advocated mass literacy so that everyone could read the Bible and interpret it competently. Their attempt to convert people through education threatened other elites and spurred those elites then in turn to also invest in mass education. So it got a set of flywheel going that did more. He's saying that the education work brought literacy to the people and transformed lives. It, it started shaping, treating women equally to men, the poor equally to rich, and that, that really benefits people's lives and helps their culture develop. But as soon as you say, but didn't other people also do that? Didn't other people also start schools? He's saying there's no evidence that that was happening except where those evangelical missionaries, the conversion Protestants, were doing it first. And when they did it, it spurred others to do it as well. But it didn't happen without their presence being there first. He also showed that their work transformed the effect of colonialism itself. Those missionaries, he says, quote, also dispersed power by publicizing colonial abuses, advocating for changes in colonial policy, and transferring skills, ideas, and networks that helped colonize people organize anti-colonial and nationalist movements. Some scholars suggest that British colonialism fostered democracy, but this may be because those missionaries had greater influence in British colonies. They forced the British to allow religious liberty. So you see, they organized people to stand up for themselves and taught them their rights because the gospel creates a different way of looking at people. Colonialism would have been so much worse than it was, and it wasn't good. Um, it would have been so much worse had it not been for the presence of evangelical, evangelistic missionaries treating people as equals. Religious freedom as a result of those missionaries. 
Here's, here's an interesting bit which relates directly to churches uh, like this one. It was the missionaries who provided detailed information and photographs that documented colonial atrocities. Missionaries also provided emotional connections to distant people and mobilised large groups through church talks. That is, they came home and spoke to their churches back at home. They provided information about colonial atrocities, which then caused the people back home to lobby the MPs and their governments to get them to moderate their behaviour overseas. So Woodbury, I'm coming to the end of this, Woodbury summarises by saying, conversionary Protestants were a crucial catalyst initiating development and spread of religious liberty, mass education, mass printing, newspapers, voluntary organisations, most major colonial reforms, the codification of legal protections for non-whites in the 19th and early 20th centuries. These innovations fostered conditions that made stable representative democracy more likely regardless of whether many people converted to Protestantism. They wanted people to be able to read the Bible in their own language and they wanted to facilitate lay religious involvement. Thus, as they tried to spread their faith, they catalyzed mass education, mass printing, and civil society, hampering elite attempts to monopolize those resources. So he concludes, this is the end, areas where Protestant missionaries had a significant presence in the past are on average more economically developed today with comparatively better health, lower infant mortality, lower corruption, greater literacy, higher educational attainment, especially for women, and he goes on and on. And, and it's a very different picture from what we normally hear, isn't it? And when people say, isn't it wrong to send missionaries, then we have to say, well, yeah, it is wrong to send missionaries who prop up colonial abuses, uh, but those who take the gospel transform people's lives. And that has benefits for the whole of society, much wider repercussions, even for those who don't accept their message. And it, it just, this, these, these parables of the kingdom and things, they, they, they change not only the lives of the Christians as the mustard seed grows and as the yeast spreads, it not only changes the lives of Christians, it is good for the whole of society that we work to extend the kingdom. And those missionaries that Woodbury's talking about, one of the most striking things is, if you go back and look at it, is that they did not intend to produce such change. They did not go out as political activists or as social workers. But as they proclaimed the gospel, as the kingdom of God grew, those were the ripple effects that go out. The, the American church leader and author John Piper, commenting on the research, said, the implication is that the way to achieve the greatest social and cultural transformation is not to focus on social and cultural transformation, but on the conversion of individuals from false religions to faith in Jesus Christ. That's enough sociology. Uh, sociology is not that interesting, is it? Um, and uh, apologies to those of you doing sociology. Let's get back to the Bible. Much more interesting. I want to end where, um, uh, where, where, where uh, verse 35, uh, where, where, where Matthew, uh, this ties this all together, where, where Matthew quotes a psalm, verse 35, Matthew says, So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. That's a quote from Psalm 78. It's one of those psalms that just retells the history of ancient Israel. History is a really hard thing to understand when you're living through it. It's very difficult. The events of our lifetimes are something of a riddle. We, we, we puzzle sometimes to fit the pieces together. It's not clear what, what is significant and what will later be forgotten. Even within our homes, I know I, I throw away things and later kick myself and I need them, and yet I fill, fill my loft at home with stuff I'm never going to need again. I don't even know what's in there. And history's like that. 
It's a subject that can only be studied with hindsight. You have to kind of stand back from it to see the big picture, to trace the main themes, which is what Psalm 78 does. And that's what the writer is saying in this verse that Matthew quotes. Uh, the, the word parable doesn't mean a story told by Jesus. It's just the regular word for riddles or proverbs or, or sayings. And so when the psalmist says, I'll open my mouth in parables, I'll utter things hidden, he's saying, history is a riddle, a puzzle, which I'm about to explain. And Matthew's saying in the same way that's true of what Jesus is saying about these kingdom things, the mustard and the yeast. He's saying these parables of the kingdom are teaching us the lessons of history. History is a puzzle until someone explains it, but here we have Jesus telling us in advance what to look out for. And when the history of this world is written, it will not trace the kings and presidents. It will not list the alliances and the wars of nations. It will not bother with the social change brought about by industrialization and globalization. Those things seem so big to us at the moment, but they'll turn out to be surprisingly minor themes. Now, when the history of this world is written, one unexpected theme will stand out towering over the rest and it will be the theme of the growth of God's kingdom how despite appearances like a mustard seed the kingdom was growing all the time bigger and bigger one person at a time as people took the opportunity to share about Jesus with their friends or to travel further and share with others how without being noticed the yeast like yeast, the kingdom was spreading all the time, reaching throughout the kingdom, going around the world, going round and round. And you think, well, Jesus' kingdom, it doesn't always look that impressive. It doesn't, doesn't look that like a, But the lesson of history will be that the reign of Jesus over the lives of his growing numbers of followers will turn out to be the most significant movement the world has ever seen, outstripping anything and everything else. And so these parables say to us, don't listen to what the world says about the kingdom being a nothing. No, the kingdom is significant. These parables say to us, don't give up. Don't give up. If the Christian life is not easy and is not meeting expectations, if holiness is hard work, if serving this king feels isolating, if every time you try to speak of him you get sort of slammed back in your face, if you feel that the world has got it all and, and that you're missing out, don't despair, don't get downhearted, don't give up. The kingdom is not failing. It is succeeding. It is growing. It is spreading around the world. It is all going to plan. And these parables say to us, don't miss out. Don't miss out. Remember Ron Wayne and his big mistake. Don't make that mistake with the kingdom of God, which is worth far more than apple. Invest your life into it. People say life is about, you've got to make something of yourself. You've got to play the hand you're dealt. But that's not it at all. Life is not about making something of yourself. It's about making, making the most of God. It's about investing everything into his kingdom. And so today I want to invite us to make our lives count. Not in the eyes of the world. Who cares what the world thinks of us? But, but to make our lives count in the cause of God. And for each of us to play a part in this kingdom that is growing and spreading around the world. I want you to get informed about world mission. There's, there's stuff on the table at the back and you can ask around. There's lots of people here who can help. Pray about world mission. 
Prayer is the number one way to change the world. Prayer will change Oxford, it will change the UK, it will change the globe. You use a prayer diary, you use the church prayer diary, there's a prayer diary on the table there, which gives you a little prayer point you can pray each day. If you pray consistently, you will meet people in heaven who are there because of you and your prayers. And if you pray, give, put your money where your faith is, and for some people, uh, maybe it is right too that you go. But do not miss out on the kingdom of God. Serve the most marginalised people in the world. Work to advance the kingdom of God. Seek to make Jesus known. Make his word known. It's a little thing in the eyes of the world. And they'll say, you're wasting your time, you're wasting your money. But one day it will be revealed to be of the utmost importance, of the greatest significance, and will bring fantastic glory to our King. So let's pray, shall we? May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. And Lord, would you use us to achieve that great end. Amen.